Section twelve of the Broad Highway by Geoffrey Farnell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Leader. Book one, chapter twenty nine. How Black George and I shook hands. The world was full of sunshine, the blithe song of birds, and the sweet pure breath of waking flowers as I rose next morning, and coming to the stream, threw myself down beside it and plunged my hands and arms and head into the limpid water whose contact seemed to fill me with a wondrous gladness in keeping with the world about me. In a little while I rose, with the water dripping from me, and, having made shift to dry myself upon my neckcloth, nothing else being available, returned to the cottage. Above my head I could hear a gentle sound, rising and falling with a rhythmic measure, that told me Donald still slept. So, clapping on my hat and coat, I started out to my first day's work at the forge, breakfastless, for the good and sufficient reason that there was none to be had, but full of the glad pure beauty of the morning. And I bethought me of the old psalmist's deathless words, Though sorrow endure for a night, yet joy cometh in the morning. Brave true words, which shall go ringing down the ages to bear hope and consolation to many a wearied, troubled soul. For now, as I climbed the steep path where bats had hovered last night, and turned to look back at the pit which had seemed a place of horror, behold, it was become a very paradise of quivering green, spangled with myriad jewels where the dew yet clung. Indeed, if any man would experience the full ecstasy of being alive, the joie de vivre, as the French have it, let him go out into the early morning, when the sun is young, and look about him with a seeing eye. So, in a little while, with the golden song of a blackbird in my ears, I turned villagewards, very hungry, yet nevertheless content. Long before I reached the smithy I could hear the ring of Black George's hammer, though the village was not yet astir, and it was with some trepidation as to my reception that I approached the open doorway. There he stood, busy at his anvil, goodly to look upon in his bare-armed might, and with the sun shining in his yellow hair, a veritable son of Anak. He might have been some hero or demigod come back from that dim age when angels wooed the daughters of men rather than a village blacksmith, and a very sulky one at that, for though he must have been aware of my presence, he never glanced up or gave the slightest sign of welcome or the reverse. Now, as I watched, I noticed a certain slowness, a heaviness in all his movements, together with a listless, slipshod air which, I judged, was very foreign to him. Moreover, as he worked, I thought he hung his head lower than was quite necessary. "'George!' George went on hammering. "'George!' said I again. He raised the hammer for another stroke hesitated, then lifted his head with a jerk, and immediately I knew why he had avoided my eye. "'What do you want with me?' "'I have come for two reasons,' said I. "'One is to begin work.' "'Then you'd best go away again,' he broke in. "'You'll get no work here.' "'And the second, I went on, is to offer you my hand. "'Will you take it, George, and let bygones be bygones?' "'No!' he burst out vehemently. No, I tell ye, ye think to come here and crow o'er me, cause ye, because ye beat me by a trick, and because ye heard her. 
His voice broke, and, dropping his hammer, he turned his back upon me. "'Called me coward!' she did. He went on after a little while. "'You heard her. They all heard her. I've been a danged fool,' he said, more as if speaking his thoughts aloud than addressing me. "'But a man can't help loving a lass. Like Prue, and when he loves he can't help hoping. I've hoped these three years and more, and last night she called me coward.' Something bright and glistening splashed down upon the anvil, and there ensued a silence broken only by the piping of the birds and the stirring of the leaves outside. "'A fool I be,' said Black George at last, shaking his head. "'No kind of man for the likes of her. Too big I be, and rough. And yet—' if she'd only given me the chance. Again there fell a silence wherein, mingled with the bird chorus, came the tap-tapping of a stick upon the hard road, and the sound of approaching footsteps, whereupon George seized the handle of the bellows, and fell to blowing the fire vigorously. Yet once I saw him draw the back of his hand across his eyes with a quick, furtive gesture. A moment after, the ancient appeared, a quaint, befrocked figure, framed in the yawning doorway and backed by the glory of the morning. He stood a while to lean upon his stick and peer about, his old eyes still dazzled by the sunlight he had just left, owing to which he failed to see me where I sat in the shadow of the forge. "'Mornin', George,' said he, with his quick, bright nod. The smith's scowl was blacker and his deep voice gruffer than usual as he returned the greeting. But the old man seemed to heed it not at all, but, taking his snuff-box from the lining of his tall, broad-brimmed hat, its usual abiding-place, he opened it with his most important air. "'Charge!' said he. "'I'm thinking you'd better take Joe back to strike for you again if you'm going to mend to old screen.' "'What do you mean?' growled Black George. "'Because—' continued the old man, gathering a pinch of snuff with great deliberation. "'Because, Charge, the young feller is beat ye at a throwin, him is was to have worked for ye at his own price. Be dead!' "'What?' cried Black George, starting. "'Dead!' nodded the old man. "'A corpy be, eh? Such a fine promising young chap, and now a corp!' Here the ancient nodded solemnly again, three times, and inhaled his pinch of snuff with great apparent zest and enjoyment. "'Why,' began the amazed George, "'what?' and broke off to stare open-mouthed. "'Last night, as ever was,' continued the old man. "'He went down to the haunted cottage. Torch no matter o' use trying to turn him, no, not if I'd gone down to him on my modder bones. He were that set on it. So off he goes.' bout sundown to sleep in the haunted cottage i knows charge cause i followed un and seen for myself so now i'm a-goin down to find his corp he had reached thus far when his eye accustomed to the shadows chancing to meet mine he uttered a gasp and stood staring at me with dropped jaw peter he stammered at last peter be that you peter "'To be sure it is,' said I. "'Bean't ye dead, then? "'I never felt more full of life. "'But ye slept in the haunted cottage last night.' "'Yes. "'But—but—the ghost, Peter.' 
is a wandering Scotsman. Why, then I can't go down and find your corp after all? <laughs> I fear not, Ancient. The old man slowly closed his snuff-box, shaking his head as he did so. Ah, oh, well, I won't blame you, Peter, said he magnanimously. It beant your fault, lad, no. But what's come of the ghost? The ghost, I answered, is nothing more dreadful than a wandering Scotsman. Scotsman? exclaimed the Ancient sharply. Scotsman? Yes, Ancient. You amazed, Peter. Ah, amazed you be. What aren't I heard and moaning and groaning to herself? Ah, and twittering too. As to that, said I, those shrieks and howls he made with his bagpipe. Very easy for a skilled player such as he. Someone was drawing water from a well across the road, for I heard the rattle of the bucket, and the creak of the winch in the pause which now ensued, during which the ancient, propped upon his stick, surveyed me with an expression that was not exactly anger, nor contempt, nor sorrow, and yet something of all three. At length he sighed, and shook his head at me mournfully. "'Peter!' said he. "'Peter, I didn't think as you'd try to take advantage of an old man with a tale the like of that. Such a very, very old man, Peter. Such an old, old man.' "'But I assure you it's the truth,' said I earnestly. "'Peter! I seen Scotchmen afore now,' said he, with a reproachful look. "'Ah, oh, that I have. Many's the time, and Scotchmen don't go about with tails, nor yet with horns on their heads.' Leastways, I've never seen one as did. And, Peter, I know what a bagpipe is. I've heard him often and often. Squeak, they do, yes. But a squeak be it a scream, Peter, nor yet a groan, no. Having delivered himself of which, the ancient shook his head at me again, and, turning his back, hobbled away. When I turned to look at George, it was to find him regarding me with a very strange expression. Sir said he ponderously. Did you sleep in that haunted cottage last night? Yes, though as I have tried to explain, and unsuccessfully it seems, it is haunted by nothing more alarming than a Scots piper. Sir, said George in the same slow, heavy way, I couldn't go in either place myself, especially after dark. I'd be a... I'd be a feared too. I did go once, and then not alone, and, and I ran away. Sir, you'm a better man nor me. You done what I durst do. Sir, if so be as you'm in the same mind about it, I should like to... to shake your hand. So there, across the anvil which was to link our lives together thenceforth, Black George and I clasped hands, looking into each other's eyes. George said I at last. I've had no breakfast. Nor I, said George. And I'm mightily hungry. <laughs> so am I, said George. Then come, let us eat. And I turned to the door. Why, so we will. But not at the bowl. She be there. Come to my cottage. It be close by, that is, if you care to, sir. "'With all my heart,' said I. "'And my name is Peter.' "'What do you say to am and eggs, Peter?' 
"'Ham and eggs will be most excellent,' said I. Chapter 30, in which I forswear myself, and am accused of possessing the evil eye. Smithing is a sturdy, albeit a very black art, yet its black is a good honest black, very easily washed off, which is more than can be said for many other trades, arts, and professions. Yes, a fine free manly art is smithing, and those who labor at the forge would seem, necessarily, to reflect these virtues. Since old Tubal Cain first taught man how to work in brass and iron, who ever heard of a sneaking, mean-spirited, cowardly blacksmith? To find such an one were as hard a matter as to discover the fourth dimension, methinks, or the carcass of a dead donkey. Your true blacksmith is usually a strong man, something bowed of shoulder, perhaps, a man slow of speech, bold of eye, kindly of thought, and, lastly, simple-hearted. Riches, genius, power. All are fair things, yet riches is never satisfied. Power is ever upon the wing, and when was genius ever happy? But as for this divine gift of simpleness of heart, who shall say it is not the best of all? Black George himself was no exception to his kind. What wonder was it, then, that as the days lengthened into weeks, my liking for him ripened into friendship? To us sometimes lonely voyagers upon this broad highway of life, journeying on, perchance through desolate places, yet hoping and dreaming ever of a glorious beyond, how sweet and how blessed a thing it is to meet some fellow wayfarer, and find in him a friend, honest and loyal and brave, to walk with us in the sun, whose voice may comfort us in the shadow, whose hand is stretched out to us in the difficult places to aid us or be aided. Indeed, I say again, it is a blessed thing, for though the way is sometimes very long, such meetings and friendships be very few and far between. So, as I say, there came such friendship between Black George and myself, and I found him a man, strong, simple, and lovable, and as such I honor him to this day. The ancient, on the contrary, seemed to have set me in his black books. He would no longer sit with me over a tankard outside the bowl of an evening, nor look in at the forge with a cheery nod and word, as had been his wont. He seemed rather to shun my society, and, if I did meet him by chance, would treat me with the frigid dignity of a grand seigneur. Indeed, the haughtiest duke that ever rolled in his chariot is far less proud than your plain English rustic, and far less difficult to propitiate. Thus, though I had once had the temerity to question him as to his altered treatment of me, the once had sufficed. He was sitting, I remember, on the bench before the bull, his hands crossed upon his stick, and his chin resting upon his hands. "'Peter!' he had answered, regarding me with a terrible eye. "'Peter, I, I be disappointed in ye!' But upon rising he had rapped loudly upon his snuff-box and hobbled stiffly away. And that ended the matter, so far as I was concerned, though, to be sure, Simon had interceded in my behalf with no better success, and thus I was still left wondering. One day, however, as George and I were hard at work, I became aware of someone standing in the doorway behind me, but at first paid no heed. 
for it was become the custom for folk to come to look at the man who lived all alone in the haunted cottage. So, as I say, I worked on heedlessly. "'Peter?' said a voice at last, and, turning, I beheld the old man leaning upon his stick, and regarding me beneath his lowered brows. "'Why, ancient!' I exclaimed, and held out my hand. But he checked me with a gesture, and fumblingly took out his snuff-box. "'Peter?' said he, fixing me with his eye. "'Were it a Scotchman, or were it not?' "'Why, to be sure it was,' I answered. "'A Scotch piper, as I told you, and—' "'Peter,' said the ancient, tapping his snuff-box, "'it weren't no ghost, then, eh or no?' "'No,' said I. "'Nothing but a Peter,' said the ancient, nodding solemnly. "'Peter, I hate ye,' and turning sharp about, he tottered away upon his stick. "'So that's it,' said I, staring after the old man's retreating figure. "'Why, you see,' said George, somewhat diffidently, "'you see, Peter, Gaffer, be so old, and all his friends be dead, and he've come to look on this here ghost as belonging to him almost. Loves to sit and tell about it, he do. It be all he've got left to live for, as you might say.' "'And now you've been and gone, and said as there beant no ghost after all, do you see?' "'Ah, yes, I see,' I nodded. "'I see. But you don't still believe in this ghost, do you, George?' "'No, not exactly,' answered George, hesitating upon the word. "'I can't say as I believe exactly, and yet, Lord, how should I know?' "'Then you do still believe in the ghost?' "'Why, you see, Peter, we do know as a man on yourself there, "'cause Gaffer found him. Likewise, I've heard it scream. "'But as for believing in it, since you say contrary-wise, "'why, how should I know?' "'But but why should I deny it, George? "'Why should I tell you all of a Scotsman?' "'Why, you see, Peter,' said George, in his heavy way, "'You be such a strange sort of chap.' "'George,' said I, "'let us get back to work.' Yet in a little while I set aside the hammer and turned to the door. "'Peter, where be goin?' "'To try and make my peace with the ancient,' I answered, and forthwith crossed the road to the bull. But with my foot on the step I paused, arrested by the sound of voices and laughter within the tap, and loudest of all was the voice of the pseudo-blacksmith, Job. "'If I were only a bit younger,' the ancient was saying. Now, peeping in through the casement, a glance at his dejected attitude and the blatant bearing of the others explained to me the situation then and there. "'Ah, but you ain't,' retorted old Amos. "'You am a old, old man, and getting older with every tick of the clock you be, and getting mazed like with years. Ha, ha laughed Job and the five or six others. "'Oh, you, Job, if if my boy Simon were here, he'd pitch you out into the road, so he would, same as Black George done,' quavered the ancient. "'Perhaps, Gaffer, perhaps,' returned Job. "'But I says again, I believe what Peter says, and I don't believe there never was no ghost at all.' "'Hey, lad, but I tell ye there was. I seed un, cried the old man eagerly. Seedin' with these two eyes, many's the time. You, Joel Amos, 
You've heard in a moanin' and a groanin'. You believe as I seed it now, don't ye now? Come! Hee-hee! <laughs> chuckled old Amos. I don't know if I do, Gaffer. You see, you am getting that old. But I did, I did. Oh, you chaps, I tell ye I did. You am getting old, Gaffer, repeated Amos, dwelling upon the theme with great unction. Very, very old. But so strong as a bull I be, added the ancient, trying manfully to steady the quaver in his voice. Oh, oh, laughed Job and the others, while old Amos chuckled shrilly again. But I tell ye I did see un, and I seed in plain as plain quavered the ancient in sudden distress. Old Nick it were, with horns and a tail. Why, Peter told us twere only a Scottish man with a bagpipe, returned Job. He for sure, nodded old Amos, so he did. A lie it be, a lie, a lie, cried the ancient. Twere old Nick, I see un, plain as I see you. Why, you see, you am getting dreadful old and helpless, gaffer chuckled old Amos again. <laughs> and your eyes plays tricks with you. Ah, to be sure they do, added Job, whereupon old Amos chuckled so much that he was taken by a violent fit of coughing. Oh, you chaps! You, as I've seen, grown up from babies. Aren't there one of you to tack a old man's word and believe as I seen un? The cracked old voice sounded more broken than usual, and I saw a tear crawling slowly down the ancient's furrowed cheek. Nobody answered, and there fell a silence broken only by the shuffle and scrape of heavy boots, and the setting down of tankards. "'Why, you see, Gaffer,' said Job at last, "'there's been a lot of talk of this here ghost, and some was even said as they eared it. But come to think on it, nobody's never laid eyes on it but you, so—' oh, "'There you were wrong, my fellow,' said I, stepping into the room. "'I also have seen it.' "'You!' exclaimed Job while half a dozen pairs of eyes stared at me in slow wonderment. Well, certainly I have. But you said it were a Scotchman, with a bagpipe. I heard ye. We all did. And believed it, like fools. Peter! cried the ancient, rising up out of his chair. Peter! Do ye mean it? To be sure I do. Do ye mean it were a ghost, Peter, do ye? Why, of course it was. I nodded. A ghost... Or, or the devil himself, hoof, horns, tail, and all, to say nothing of the fire and brimstone. Peter, said the ancient, straightening his bent old back proudly, oh, Peter, tell him I'm a man of truth and no liar. You tell him, Peter. Oh, they know that, said I. They know it without my telling them, ancient. But, said Job, staring at me aghast, do you mean to say, as you live in a place as is haunted by the, the devil himself? Oh, Lord bless ye cried the old man, laying his hand upon my arm. Peter don't mind old Nick, no more than I do. Peter aren't afraid of him, cause why? Cause he have a clean heart, a Peter. You don't mind old Nick, do we, lad? Not in the least, said I, whereupon those nearest instinctively shrank farther from me, while old Amos rose and shuffled towards the door. I've heard of folk selling theirselves to the devil afore now, said he. "'You be a danged fool, Joel Amos!' exclaimed the ancient angrily. "'Fool or no! I never see a chap with such a terrible dark-looking face afore, and with such eyes, so black and sharp and piercing as needles they be. Ah, 
goes through a man like two gimblets they do now as he spoke old amos stretched out one arm toward me with his first and second fingers crossed which fingers he now opened wide apart making what i believe is called the horns and an infallible safeguard against this particular form of evil it's the evil eye said he in a half whisper the evil eye and turning about betook himself away one by one the others followed and as they passed me each man averted his eyes and i saw that each had his fingers crossed so it came to pass that i was thenceforward regarded askance if not openly avoided by the whole village with the exception of simon and the ancient as one in league with the devil and possessed of the evil eye chapter thirty one in which donald bids me farewell halcyon days my masters happy carefree halcyon days to waken to the glory of a summer's morning and shaking off dull sleep like a mantle to stride out into a world all green and gold breathing a fragrant air laden with sweet earthy smells to plunge within the clear cool waters of the brook whose magic seemed to fill one's blood with added life and lust of living anon with gargantuan appetite to sit and eat until even donald would fall a marvelling and so through shady coppice and sunny meadow betimes to work halcyon days my masters happy carefree halcyon days with the ringing hammers the dancing sparks mounting upon the smoke the sweat the toil yet all lightened with laugh and song and good fellowship and then the labor done the fire dead black george to his lonely cottage and i to the bowl there to sit between simon and the ancient waited upon by the dexterous hands of sweet-eyed prudence what mighty rounds of juicy beef washed down by draughts of good brown ale what pies and puddings prepared by those same slender dexterous hands and later pipe in mouth what grave discussions upon men and things peace and war the dead and the living the rise and fall of nations and simon's new litter of pigs at last the good nights being said homer through the twilight lanes often pausing to look upon the shadowy woods to watch some star or hearken to the mournful note of a night-jar soft with distance what wonder if at this time my earlier dreams and ambitions faded from my ken what wonder that petronius arbiter and the jolly sur de brantome lay neglected in my dusty knapsack go to petronius go to how stale flat and unprofitable were all thy vaunted pleasures compared with mine alas for thy noble intellect draggled in the mire to pander to an imperial swine and for all thy power and wise statecraft which yet could not save thee from untimely death o thou brantome old gossip with all thy scandalous stories of ladies always and ever très belle et fort honnête couldst not find time among them all to note the glories of the world wherein they lived and moved and had their fort honnête being but let it not be thought my leisure hours were passed in idle dreaming and luxurious ease on the contrary i had with much ado rethatched the broken roof of my cottage as well as i might mended the chimney 
fitted glass to the casements, and a new door upon its hinges. This last was somewhat clumsily contrived, I grant you, and of a vasty strength quite unnecessary. Yet a very excellent door I considered it, nevertheless. Having thus rendered my cottage weatherproof, I next turned my attention to furnishing it, to which end I, in turn, and with infinite labor, constructed a bedstead, two elbow-chairs, and a table, all to the profound disgust of Donald, who would by no means abide the rasp of my saw, so that, reaching for his pipes, he would fill the air with eldritch shrieks and groans, or drown me in a torrent of martial melody. It was about this time, that is to say, my second bedstead was nearing completion, and I was seriously considering the building of a press with cupboards to hold my crockery, also a shelf for my books, when, chancing to return home somewhat earlier than usual, I was surprised to see Donald sitting upon the bench I had set up beside the door, polishing the buckles of that identical pair of square-toed shoes that had once so piqued my curiosity. As I approached, he rose, and came to meet me with the brogues in his hand. "'Man, Peter,' said he, "'I'm on Jewish to be gangin'. "'Going?' I repeated. "'Going where?' "'Back to Glenure. The year's a-most up, you ken, and I wouldn't have a brother all in afore me with the lassie, for by he's an uncle bra and sonsy man, you ken, and the lassie's mind is aye a kittle thing. True, I answered, what little I know of woman would lead me to suppose so, and yet, well, heaven knows, I shall be sorry to lose you, Donald. Eh, I ken that fine, and ye'll be uncle lonesome without me and the pipes, I'm thinking. Very. Eh, Peter, man, if it wasna for the lassie, I'd no hay the heart to leave ye. You'll no be forgetting the woolly wallace lament? Oh, never, said I. Oh, man, Peter, it's in my mind you'll no hear sick piping again, for by there's nae man, Highlander nor Lowlander, has just the trick of the warblers like me, and it's no vera like we shall e'er meet again i this wild man, Peter. But I'll aye think o' ye away there in Glenure when I play the woolly Wallace bit tune. I'll aye think o' ye, Peter, man. After this we stood a while, staring past each other into the deepening shadows. Peter, said he at last, it's no a very genteel present to be making ye, I doot. And he held up the battered shoes. They're uncle worn, and with a clout here and there, you'll notice. But the buckles are good sealer, and hae nothing else to give ye. Eh, man, but it's many a weary mile I've marched in these at the head of the ninety-second, and it's mony a stark fact they've been through. Vittoria, Salamanca, Terevera, Te Quatre Bras, and Waterloo. Tack em, Peter, tack em, to mind ye sometimes a Donald Stuart. And now, give us a grip o' your hand. Good keep ye, Peter, man. So saying, he thrust the brogues upon me, caught and squeezed my hand, and, turning sharp about, strode away through the shadows, his kilt swaying, and tartan streaming gallantly. And presently I went and sat me down upon the bench beside the door, with the war-worn shoes upon my knee. Suddenly, as I sat there, faint and fainter with distance, and unutterably sad, came the slow, sweet music of Donald's pipes playing the Wallace Lament. 
Softly the melody rose and fell, until it died away in one long-drawn, wailing note. Now, as it ended, I rose and uncovered my head, for I knew this was Donald's last farewell. Much more I might have told of this strange yet lovable man who was by turns the scarred soldier, full of stirring tales of camp and battlefield, the mischievous child delighting in tricks and rogueries of all sorts, and the stately Highland gentleman. Many wild legends he told me of his native glens, with strange tales of the second sight. But here, perforce, must be no place for such. So here, then, I leave Donald, and hurry on with my narrative. End of section 12